Welcome to the Best Teachers of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Jim Klipfell on the show. Jim was announced as being California's Teacher of the Year for 2021. He is now in contention for the National Teacher of the Year contest. Jim is a high school history teacher from the LA area and has 30 years of insight to share with us. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Jim, uh, there's a great debate amongst teachers whether teachers are born or made. Um, there's some people that think that teachers are just come out of the womb, you know, with that bug inside of them uh, embedded in their genetic code uh, that they were born to be teachers. And then there's another camp that thinks, um, you know, you can take a smart, hardworking person and make them into a good teacher. Uh, now, obviously, it's somewhere in the middle, um, but what, where, where are you in that conversation? Are good teachers born or made? I swam competitively for 18 years and I've been coaching since 1988. We have the same debate about swimmers. Can you turn a novice into a world-class swimmer? And that debate rages. And, and I, I'm not so sure you can. I think you can turn a good swimmer into a great swimmer, but a novice, someone who doesn't have that automatic feel for the water that comes naturally to some athletes or that they pick it up extremely quickly, so if I can make that analogy to teaching, you know, over the years I've been involved in hiring or interviewing hundreds, maybe, maybe a thousand different people in education, and I've worked with hundreds and hundreds. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that there's people who, who have that humility, that empathy, that excitement, that raw talent with their relationships with others their mastery of their subject, their excitement to continue learning, their ability to have a sixth sense of how to inspire people. I like to say that, that people will give their minimum for the basic reward or to avoid penalties, but you have to volunteer to give your best. And when you find that in people, it's often a natural trait where they have that inner inspiration. So, I would probably have to fall on the side that if someone has those traits or they're easily developed, they're open to the, the Japanese concept of Kaizen that I believe in. It's uh, basically this idea of constant dedication to improvement. If someone has those traits, and I know that sounds like a big, long, messy list, they probably, given time and nurturing, are going to be a rock star in education. If they need to develop their content, that can come along the way. It's helpful if they already have a love and a passion and a reservoir to pull from. But a lot of teachers, you know, end up changing, you know, their coursework, they're reassigned, they're moved to a different school. So that can develop. And of course, hopefully we also are lifelong learners. So maybe that's a, like a $5 answer to a 25 cent question. But in the end, I think we have certain traits that, that lend us to, towards success. One anecdote about that might be the, uh, the career paths that schools have been, have been trying to implement in recent years. And there have been times where, and still are, where people from a, another career walk of life 
engineering, marketing, uh, auto mechanics, things like that are brought in to teach career paths in the schools. And sometimes they click really well because they had those traits. But I've also seen situations where you have someone who really understands the task at hand and the skills, but is unable to connect with and inspire uh, their students. And that maybe is proof that it is a calling, it is a, it is a profession that isn't for everyone. Yeah. And I, you know, I've had plenty of experiences sitting on hiring, uh, hiring <laughs> committees, hiring a new history teacher or whatever. And you, you know, it, it is a challenge to identify these people. I mean, you, you, cause oftentimes you're seeing just someone for 15 minutes. Um, and you know, a lot of administrators have to hire, you know, just because there's, you know, sometimes you don't get that passionate person in the, in the commit, in your hiring committee or whatever, and you have to, you have to help them grow into being a teacher. Um, and it seems like the people that you're describing are definitely a subset of teachers, but then there's this whole world of teachers that are, you know, it's maybe not that, you know, maybe they got in the profession for, you know, as a good job or something. And, and I, I guess my hope would be is that, you could get in the profession for maybe not these reasons of having it be the perfect career fit and that we would be able to guide you into that. Do you think that's possible? Some great questions. Uh, I personally think one of the most important jobs in education is hiring. If an administrator, a principal of a school spends more time hiring and you hire a great staff for four or five years, you know, they could literally put their feet up and play solitaire for the next five years. So it's probably three prongs for me. Hire great people, get out and recruit, watch them in what they're doing, recruit them at the uh, teacher training schools, the credential programs. California has some great universities training some outstanding people, not enough districts, not enough administrators take days off. I shouldn't say take days off, but leave their sites, leave their district, leave their comfort zone and get out and recruit. So that would be number one, find great people, check on their references, et cetera. The second thing I would say is support everyone and expect the best of them. So whether it's professional development, whether it's, you know, getting in and observing and building relationships. And again, as I said earlier, inspiring them to do their best getting them to volunteer to do their best. And then the third thing for me, and I'm going to use a a generous term for this, is career change. That it is not a job for everyone. And if you can identify one or two people on your staff, you know, every couple of years, give them a special degree of attention and support. And if they're just not able to grow or unwilling to grow, that person, those people really should be encouraged for a career change. And different districts have different mechanisms for that. And I think if administrators do that early when they hire people, in addition to checking references, observing, you know, we would have staffs that are, are more inspiring, people that are more, uh, shall we say, prepared, uh, have more support and developing along the way. And, and there's a, maybe a little tutorial for budding administrators as well. Yeah, it, you know, I, as a part of a, a, you know, my local association, part of CTA, like I definitely see the value of, of, of tenure and, uh, you know, job security. 
Um, but, you know, it's just two years, uh, at least in my district, that uh, people are, you know, kind of permanent. Um, and, you know, I've got friends that I've been friends with for 10 years, and I'm still getting to know some things about them. <laughs> and, you know, you don't know everything about your employee in those first two years either. And it can be a challenge because, um, you know, I, I simultaneously want job security, but I also want to be working with great people who are passionate about their uh, careers. Um, and, you know, that it's just, it's, it's a quagmire, I feel like. And I don't, I don't see a, a simple way forward. Um, and I, I do think you're right. I think we need like positive, uh, re- you know, positive uh, outlets for people, get people out of the profession that's not just disciplinary or, or, or something negative. Um, and I, you know, I think that would be a good way forward. And it, and it can be something that, because I feel like that when it's negative, it gets in that kind of teacher's union versus administration thing versus what's best for the person and the kids, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think people forget that every bad teacher was hired by an administrator. And that two-year window or three-year window, depending on your circumstances for tenure, uh, that is narrow. But I also think that the number of teachers that would get through that, that would disappoint us, would be dramatically less if the hiring was taken a little more seriously, more recruiting, more observation, more support. And I know the district I work for has a peer assistance and review program where teachers can be evaluated and placed into a one to two year review. And the panel, which is administrators and teachers, then you know, supports those teachers as they grow, and, and some of them are veterans, and then releases them if they're not willing to do so. So there are innovative alternatives for that sort of thing. I do think that people need to remember unions are democratic bodies of their workers. Unions are consequences of policies or practices of management. They're not the initial instigator. On the other hand, I know with my union over the last 30 years, there have been plenty of times that I've taken issue with some of the, the things they've stood for. But, but in the end, I think we need to go back to those three points I made. The hiring is a management issue, and they need to do a better job of it. We all need to work harder, and we all need to be willing to be career changed if, if it's not an ideal situation. Absolutely. Let's, let's go uh, in the time machine for a second. Um, so you've been teaching for a long time. Um, can you remember what those uh, first couple years of teaching were like for you? Yeah, looking back, it was kind of a blur. It was extraordinarily exciting to me. I, I knew somewhere around 12 or 13 that growing up was difficult. And the, the two prongs of that, one, getting a formal education, getting skills, and in an increasingly globalized world over the last 50 years, that is a serious endeavor to get young people skilled so they can, you know, find their way into the job market, find a a standard of living that they're happy with. But the other side of that is just simply maturation, both emotional, you know, physical, mental growing up. And I've never met anyone that said growing up was easy. I've never met anyone who said, you know, I had too many role models. I had too much help. Growing up was was too positive of an experience for me. So somewhere along the line, I, I started getting a natural high off of helping people. 
of making their journey a little easier, uh, tutoring, coaching, advising. And I just got the bug that, hey, this could be a, a very rewarding path to help other people along that journey. So by the time I, I was in high school, I knew, hey, this is what I wanted to do. And it, it helped me out because when you have a dream, everything else becomes easier. You know, tearing through your own courses and growth and experiences, looking for internships, applying for schools, applying for jobs. So by the time I was in grad school and, and doing interns, I'm sorry, doing my student teaching, uh, you know, I was coaching, I was teaching, I was going to school. And that, those for anyone who's been through it, probably could look back and agree, those are some of the busiest times of your life. You, you just have no downtime. And this was all pre-internet. So if I wanted a great picture or a great document or something for my lessons in social studies, you know, I was at the university library late into the night, all day Saturday, whereas of course now, you know, you can find what you need literally in seconds. And it's hard for people today to, to, to realize that, uh, the workload to pull off a great lesson in that sense, it's got easier. But so I would say it was a blur in that sense, but it was also a blur because <clears throat> you're getting thrown into this where you're learning the bureaucracy of schools and districts and the law. You're learning firsthand that not everybody had the paradigms you have, whether it's because of their standard of living, their race, their origin, uh, their religious values. So you end up with a staff and students that's just incredibly dynamic and it's exciting, but it's also a challenge because you want to succeed. You want to reach everyone. You want to be able to help everyone. And for me, a teacher has two goals. One is to get you out of your comfort zone and grow. And that's the sort of bullwhip of education or coaching or advising or parenting to get people out of their comfort zone up to the level that you know they can reach, what is their potential. And as you become a veteran, you know, in education, you, you have a very good idea of what the average 12 or 17 year old can do. And then of course, on the other side of the bullwhip is the pom-pom. You know, how do we encourage and love and motivate and inspire and give kids security? And when you get both of those, you really start to have success. And I don't think, anybody starts with both of those fully developed. So those first few years, uh, if you're lucky, you're really open and humble. If not, maybe you're a little cocky and it takes a little while to learn. Uh, and if you're not open to that at all, you're going to really struggle and you're either going to career change or you're, you're never really going to find that, that zone. Yeah. Yeah. And those, yeah, I, I, I tend to see that too with younger teachers. They come in with kind of one style or the other and developing that two prong approach, like you're saying is, is kind of that maturity step um, and seeing that sometimes you have to play one card or the other or both at the same time. So let's talk about technology real quick. Cause it's a big one. Um, I'm sure you're as tired of zoom as I am. Um, but technology, you know, when we go through big changes like this, I mean, you're a history teacher, you know, big changes, wars, uh, pandemics, uh, they bring about changes in society that uh, stick with us. Um, we think about, you know, uh, women uh, going to work during World War II um, and some of the uh, gender revolutions that happened after, you know, we think about... Uh, us right now in the pandemic, uh, we're using, we're being forced to really become experts with, you know, 
Google Classroom or whatever technology or software we use. So for you um, as a veteran teacher, what do you think um, we should keep technology-wise post-pandemic when we do return to the classroom in a more traditional sense? Well, maybe a good starting point is to talk about what I think has revolutionized education. And I mentioned a minute ago, the internet, and for an educator to be able to tap into sources of podcasts of experts, primary documents, photographic history, things like that. And and then also to share those resources with students. It also comes with the responsibility of teaching young people to be able to differentiate between what is factual, what is fiction and those sort of things. So one to me would be the internet and access to it. I, I personally think that the debate between equality and equity in education uh, it rages on and it's a critical one and equity to me is the big issue for access to the internet if we have students who do not have reliable internet at home pandemic post pandemic whatever uh, districts need to make sure that those students have devices that have prepaid internet access so that that can be a great equalizer uh, by having equity and access to uh, devices like that. One of the technological devices that I think has revolutionized teaching is the document camera. And, you know, that began with maybe a clunkier Elmo, but in in my classroom today, it's just a platform I built with my iPad flipped over. But the idea that I can grab a book off a shelf when a kid asks a question, go to a page I know it's at, drop it down and read a paragraph, or to start with an inspiring, motivating quote that everybody sees up on the screen that I didn't have to copy, that Maybe every student's writing me a thesis or a reflection and I can grab Billy's and throw it up under the doc cam and there it is. We can all be on the same page instantly. To me, that was a radical and revolutionary change. So I would say access to the internet. I would say devices that teachers, individual teachers find valuable. And for me, that would be the doc cam. And maybe just the lesson that technology is a tool and anytime it starts usurping the purpose of education as opposed to serving you know our journey that gets me a little nervous and frequently as the pendulum swings back and forth there's a trend you know coming from a particular group of teachers or administrators and sometimes it has some staying power but frequently if you look back over the last 50 years in education there's a lot all you got to do is go to an older school and you will find pieces of technology in the storage rooms and on the shelves some of which you can't even identify anymore. Now that doesn't mean that things uh, aren't useful and then phased out. I remember using you know the big laser disc players and things like that to show images and short clips, and those were phenomenal uh, as the internet was developing and things like that. So maybe again a, a wordy answer to your question. I think they're tools, and I think there's some great tools. But I also think uh, pencil, paper, physical annotations, experiments, hands-on interactions, discussions, uh, writing, that's really where it's at. And technology is a facilitator. On the other hand, maybe one last caveat here. As you look into artificial intelligence, it is so shockingly complex that I think it's fair to say, humbly, that I have no idea how we are going to educate the children of our children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I, I just think about some of those stories that came out about uh, tech CEOs who 
their kids don't have iPhones until they're 18 or, you know, some of those Bay Area schools where it's a lot of the work is analog and it's because of these people that are so familiar with the technology, they understand the implications. And I, you know, I, there, there is a temptation because there is so much good educational technology to just throw a computer, throw a Chromebook at a kid with a bunch of ed puzzles and, you know, whatever and say, go for it. Um, but that misses a critical piece of education, which is, you know, human interaction. It misses, you know, these, these analog things that are really good for kids development too. And I, I worry about it because the education technology companies are getting so good at, you know, designing the perfect thing um, for us. And it's, especially when you're a new teacher, I think you can see, uh, you know, these, these technology tools as ways to, you know, become a better teacher faster, you know? Yeah. I want to agree with you a couple of years ago, maybe four or five years ago, I read a book by Adam Alter called Irresistible. And it really explains what you just referred to that people like Steve Jobs were not letting their little kids onto their iPads. And people, I think, forget that the applications, the games, et cetera, uh, including design of things like Facebook and, and, other, and other programs, they're designed to suck you in and, and uh, usurp your free time and, and instill a certain amount of searching for validation. And it's really a challenge for the modern teacher to talk to kids about that and be able to break them from that and make them aware of that, that the cell phone in their pocket is a tool. I, I can't even imagine growing up right now. Yeah, I was the youngest of eight. My parents were World War II generation. My dad fought in the war. We had one black and white TV. And if I watched a TV show Tuesday night, 8 to 8.30, guess what? I waited till the next Tuesday. And there was one phone in the kitchen and my four older sisters probably used it more than anybody else. <laughs> but to tell a kid today, hey, in your pocket is a phone that has every game, every TV show, every movie. It has access to you know, an infinite number of entertaining or engaging or you know, wasteful sites. You can communicate with a kid in Tokyo while you're playing Fortnite. Are you kidding me? And, and that kid is supposed to be disciplined and focused. So I, I love technology. I was having kids make, uh, you know, web-based term papers before my school had more than two or three computers. But I'm also a Luddite in the sense that a pen and a highlighter annotating a great article uh, there's a lot of research out there that says that the retention, the learning, the focus uh, is, is on my side. So give me a pen and a highlighter um, at least once in a while. That's where I would land. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a hard thing because I think even still, and most people would say that the deep work that is valuable is oftentimes the boring work. <laughs> and, you know, uh, uh, a sure. world-class lawyer um, is not scrolling through the internet for answers. They're reading exhaustive amount of documents, uh, looking and probing. You know, the great uh, scientists are not just, you know, swiping through something. They're and, I, I, and I think you have to teach that today. I, you know, I have a flip phone. I don't even use a smartphone. And I talk to kids about why. It's a choice. Do you budget time? you know, fall asleep for 10 minutes each night while you're flipping through an actual paper book. It's worthy of having that discussion. 
because when you grow up in the era surrounded by this and you're 16 or 14 or 10, you're not questioning that necessarily. So I think it's helpful for a teacher to have open-ended questions, not necessarily judgmental, but to throw out their opposing viewpoints and research and, and get kids to think about it. Are they a rat in a maze to some extent? Yeah, I feel like technology maybe is going to go through a similar pattern that uh, food is going through. You know, I mean, you think about the kind of the food revolution of, you know, all these snack foods and amazing foods at our fingertips. And you have kind of in the similar way that there's a digital divide, you have some people just, you know, in food deserts that are eating, you know, snack foods, junk foods. Um, and then there is this kind of world that's people are seeing, uh, the problem of unlimited access to these kind of really simple carbohydrates and they're, 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 they're changing their lifestyle and reverting back to more simple whole foods. And so maybe we'll go through a similar thing with technology where people will start to see um, what it's doing to us. That would be the hope, but you know, I mean that, that requires a societal change. Um, let's, let's talk about something history nerd related, which is my favorite topic. Um, which is speaking of innovations in education, uh, document-based questions are always the sexiest thing for uh, history teachers, especially new history teachers. They want to come in and teach a DBQ every day. Um, and as you know, as an educator, teaching a document-based question well requires work, time, the kids to have background knowledge. Um, and so my question to you, and you can defend your answer one way or another, are, are document-based questions overrated or underrated in education? Well, maybe I'm going to answer it by cheating and suggest that it's maybe more complex than just choosing one side, sure, the, the sure. classic either-or question trap here. Um, I believe that students should be exposed to a great deal of primary sources of all kinds, and along the way, they should be exposed to secondary sources, not just their textbook. Hopefully, they have a good textbook, but, you know, competing historians with different points of view, et cetera. Uh, but along that journey, and in my classroom, it's driven by prompts that allow us to explore them during, during that one lesson or that week or that unit. And through that process, we expose ourselves to all sorts of primary and second, secondary documents used to address that prompt. And if you think about it, I know on my campus, the kid with the lowest GPA uh, who's out on the quad and somebody said, you know, administrator or campus supervisor says, hey, I need to search your backpack. Suddenly that kid uh, starts quoting the Fifth Amendment and whatever he learned on law and order and things like that. And that's a DBQ. You know, it's taking evidence from documents or sources and putting together an argument quickly in a coherent way that gets your point across. So I think kids come to us with the raw ability to make an argument under duress for their self-interest. Our issue is how do we hijack that and get them to take historical information and make similar arguments. And I tell my students, my history classes are not history classes, they're future classes, because unless you're going on Jeopardy, it's really about explaining how we got to this point, both the disasters they're inheriting and the gifts and uh, wonders they're inheriting. It is a mix. Um, and how do they march forward and shape their future and deal with fixing things 
we've left them that are needing repair and addressing and building on institutions that they're fortunate to inherit. And the document-based question, I think, or just the use of primary sources allows them to see the complexity of the past, the arguments of the past. You know, I mean, fiction, those are primary sources. Music, primary sources. And my class every day is filled with those, inspiring kids to see that the day-to-day -day lives and tumults of times inspire these things, whether it's a court case or a diary or a recipe or a lyric. And that is the fascinating, exciting part of it. Now, going back to your question of, is it the be-all, end-all? No, and I would be disturbed if, if just writing for like a college board type DBQ and getting that high score, if that's seen as the end. But if the means is to analyze primary sources and discuss larger prompts and have debates about what got us here so we can move forward, if the debate is over how to be a thinking, reasoning, sentient being that can analyze complex things, I say go for it. So again, there's a long answer to a, a debated question. Well, I think you're saying it's properly rated, um, you know, as long as it's being used correctly. And I think this right now, this historical moment is really great for document-based questions because we're having all these conversations about uh, statues and memorializing certain things in history. You know, should we take Confederate statues down? Should we, should Junipero Serra, you know, kind of one of the early Spanish uh, explorers, you know, Franciscans in California, should he be removed? And I think those sure. questions make it present for kids, you know, because this is, this is what's happening right now. And social media is actually, you know, fueling a lot of this. And so they're seeing it. And I think that's a unique opportunity to, to meet them in their own worlds. Well, and I like to go back to what I said a minute ago, which is it's not a history class. It's a present class. It's a future class. So I have students every day who debate the issues you just brought up. And I like to, you know, put up the stop sign and say, okay, whatever side you're coming from, you know, get rid of those statues, uh, rename the schools. And then the other side of, you know, how dare you, it's un-American, it's unpatriotic. I, I just like saying, stop a minute. Let's ask a different question. Through democracy, does a school board, does a community, does a state, does the new group, the young people uh, of today, do they have a right to decide what the name of their schools are? Do they have a right to decide what a park should be called? Do they have a right to say that statue uh, needs to go? I got someone else to say. You know, suddenly when you look at it from that point of view, you're no longer arguing right or left or you know, patriotic or revolutionary. You're just simply looking at an institution of democracy that, hey, every generation should be able to celebrate who they want. And that takes kind of the edge off it. And when you do that, kids get to see that, hey, who do we value? Do we even know who that person was? And by the way, what kind of government was it that put that up? Was it a free democratic little D government? Or was it one that had excluded huge parts of society uh, from even voting or having input on that? And, and suddenly that opens up a whole new conversation. But you can't get there if you don't understand your past if you haven't read the primary and secondary documents. Yeah, and a lot of these people that, you know, the statues are taken down, uh, especially the younger generations, they don't even know who they are. Um, you know, and that's maybe the first step is, is, is discovering uh, who, these, uh, who these people are. And I, I was having a great conversation recently with a, 
a historian on another podcast that I do, uh, Susan Lee Johnson. We were talk, um, talking about Kit Carson. Uh, Susan just wrote a book about Kit Carson. And that is a person who is equally uh, kind of fraught in terms of history and seeing him as a good guy or a bad guy. Uh, but op- but people really don't know the facts of his life and his context either. And so that taking that first step to try and understand uh, this person, I think, is, uh, is an also equally important step. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you've ever read Blood and Thunder, but it's a great piece on Kit Carson. It's just a fascinating uh, character in American history. Absolutely. I haven't read that, and I will add that to my list. Let's, let's talk about uh, training new teachers. A few more questions. Um, so at the beginning, we kind of talked about, you know, are teachers born or made? And uh, even if you're born a teacher, if we take that as our assumption, uh, passionate people still need training to become good professionals. Um, and a lot of districts have different ways of training new teachers and uh, kind of inducting them into our professional community. Um, some ways are better than others. Um, I've had mixed experiences with uh, kind of new teacher trainings. Um, so if you were suddenly, if Jim was suddenly the czar of new teacher training in your district, uh, what kinds of uh, activities or programs might you put into place to help new teachers? So I'm going to change your question a little bit to answer it. If, if you were to ask me what shaped me, what fueled my growth in the best way, what are the components of my career that helped me develop my strengths, um, I, would, I would answer it this way. I would say, one, being an avid reader getting my hands on anything about my content, about the human condition, about young people, about pedagogy, about psychology. And so maybe in a good induction program needs to be a, a book club. It needs to have uh, a book list where people are constantly being given copies and provided with just inspiring cutting edge research on all of those topics. Another area, that has had huge uh, influence on my development is observing other teachers. I've been fortunate in the bulk of my career, I've been a team teacher. So from seventh through 11th grade, I have worked with um, at least one to three other teachers, sometimes in the same classroom in interdisciplinary teaming. So every day, which is rare in education, I can look at another trained adult that I respect and say, how'd that go? You know, what, what can I do to make changes? So a good induction program would have observations of the teacher that are frequent, genuine, and unthreatening, but also encouraging teachers to get out and see other diverse people, which is so important during student teaching and induction. Another aspect or factor that I think really shaped me is one that we often forget, and a lot of young uh, teachers of younger students don't do, and that is student evaluations of teachers. So for 30 years in June, I've had students evaluate my teaching, my coaching, and I have them all in a file. And uh, I take time to write good questions. I kind of encourage slash force them to take time to give me detailed comments. They could be anonymous or not. And I spend two or three days in the summer referring to those, reflecting on those, making plans of how I can make some legitimate growth. So in areas like that, that you get inspiration from cutting edge authors, inspiration from observers, ideas from students, ideas from observation. 
And of course, you can throw in the traditional conferences and professional developments that are provided. But I think those three are kind of the traditional unspoken things that if, if I were to design an induction program, it would be buried in concepts like that. Yeah. I, this is not one of the questions I sent you, and I'm, I'm just kind of curious. Um, you know, we've all had bosses and administrators um, that we've worked for. Um, I've worked for at least at least five different principals so far in my career. I'm at nine right now. You're at nine. So what what are kind what are so if there's an administrator listening to this, say, uh, what kinds of things have you found helpful that administrators have done for teachers that has really helped them to excel? Uh, are there certain things that you would point to that you've seen past administrators do that have been super helpful? I'd say number one is listen. You know. Pay attention to the pulse of your campus, pay attention to the pulse of, of your departments, your experts, and your individual teachers. Every school has sort of a couple of grandfathers or grandmothers who are the wise sages. Get to know them and figure out, you know, ask the key people and, and maybe everybody, what are the three things on this campus that we need to work on? What are three things that we should fight to defend? Um, also, identify your, your, your two or three staff members that are really misplaced and focus on helping them or, or career changing them. Don't treat your whole staff in a manner that reflects the behavior of those two, three or four or 5%. That is not a way to advance that campus forward. And in the end, be ubiquitous. Your office should be a place that maybe you left your lunch. Uh, have your work in your backpack or your satchel, you know, give your uh, uh, secretary, administrative assistant, your number and get out there, sit in the back of classrooms, sit in the back of club meetings, sit in the back of department meetings. And then when problems arise, you already know what's going on and you have solutions. If I walk into administrator's office, I want them to listen, but I also want them to cut me off and say, what you're really saying is this, and we need to do this. Now that's someone who has the wisdom and experience uh, to help bring us about. It's, it's about that flipping the pyramid, you know. Um, at the top is the kids, and then you have your teachers and your teacher's aides, and all, it goes all the way down. And, you know, I, I can't do my job without the attendance secretary and the custodian, the classified staff is gold, and anyone who doesn't understand that doesn't get schools. But administrators really need to, to listen. What can I do for you? That's the question. How can I serve you? And I, I don't think a teacher wants to hear, well, we're out of money. It's what can I do for you? Okay. It might take a while. I'm going to find that. Yeah. I've, uh, yeah, for me, it's, it's always been this kind of simultaneous support and challenge. Um, so an administrator that supports me in the things that I want to do, but also challenges me to do those things better than I might've done otherwise. That that's always so motivating for me. Because I want to feel like like kids, like you talked about before at the beginning, you know, the kind of the cheer, the pom poms and the the bullwhip. Like you want to both feel supported, but also, you know, I don't want to just work in a place. Good teachers don't want to just work in a place where they can give the kids a worksheet, sit down at their desk, and. Well, I intimated about that earlier when I said, you know, good hiring challenge your people and career change and that challenge your people goes right along with what you're saying. Yeah. 
So uh, two questions to conclude. Uh, this was this is kind of the pom pom one. Uh, so you know, looking back at your career, you've probably you know interacted with tons and tons of new teachers. Um, so you know, there's and from what I've heard uh, through CTA this year is that we're getting a lot of uh, teachers retiring early because of the pandemic and things, which means we're going to have a ton of new teachers. Um, so if you uh, were tasked with kind of you know have, sitting down with a new teacher and giving them some, uh, you know, some motivational words at the beginning of their career, uh, what would you say to someone entering the profession today? All right, I actually have a short list. I, I shared this with a uh, group of teachers going through teacher training at CSUN recently. So I'm gonna tick them off if that's okay. all right with you. Yeah, yeah, please. So listen and welcome observations. Get to know your school, your department, the individuals who've really put time in there. Get to know your very specific student body because every, every campus is different and you want to know your, your clientele. Ask your peers, your department chairs, and the veterans for ideas, support. They're there for you. Read like crazy. Get your hands on good books that will give you tools to serve kids. Attend every possible function you can. Be ubiquitous. Let kids know. Let the staff know you respect them and you understand they're in a diverse uh, a pool of different commitments in their lives. Um, understand that you bring new blood to a school, but veterans are the, the bedrock of that school. So don't confuse being a veteran with being old and outdated because they've put in their 10,000 hours and they can do things with that sixth sense that you can't even dream about yet. Uh, it goes, another one goes back to what I've said before that People will do the minimum, but they have to volunteer to do their best. So you want to inspire your students, the secretaries, the classified staff and people around you to do that for you as well. And you've, you've got to model that as well. Uh, next, remember results and causes. And you think about it as disease and symptoms. You, know, you can yell at a kid that comes in tardy or you can say, hey, why are you tardy? And it, you, the kid might surprise you. It's because, well, my mom has cancer, so I have to take look, my little brother to the junior high across the street. I'm going to be late every day. So now you talk to the kid about just communication. You say, hey, you should have told me that. Let's move forward. I'm going to be fine with your tardies. Give me an update on your mom every so often. So it's that idea of don't treat the symptom, treat the disease. I hope that makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, also, always remember to reteach, reassess. Don't assume that because you say it, it's sunk, sunk in. Another thing I like to remind new teachers is kids need a rabbit to chase. They need a dream. And once you help kids find that, you know, on a weekly basis, hey, are you reading this? Are you doing a personality test? Are you exploring these things? Internships. Once a kid has a dream, they'll do almost anything for you. I would tell new teachers, lift kids from uh, the top and the bottom. You want to make sure you're, you're, uh, the kids who have the, the most uh, prior knowledge and experience, you want to make sure they absolutely are always challenged, but you never want to leave anyone behind. A couple others, be yourself. You can't fake it. So whatever traits you have, you need to go with that, but hopefully you, you, you take nuggets from other people. Make sure all of your lessons are interesting, relevant, and engaging. You want to grab kids at all levels. You want to give back to the community, get involved in, in those ways. And uh, remember, it's all about the kids. It's their senior year. It's their first day of junior high. 
Uh, it's, it's the sort of, uh, you know, kick in the crotch when you're doing it for you and you realize I'm not connecting with these kids. They don't love being here. You want them constantly craving to be back in your class, back in your club, back in your program. Um, and, and to be that person that they look back on and you were the person that tipped those dominoes that impacted their lives, their career choices and their good choices. Kids need to be loved. They need us. Well, those are, those are great. Uh, a great list of things. And I think, you know, having those bullet points on your desk in your first two years of teaching would go a long way to remind you about. I wish I had had them 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, another kind of random question came up, uh, as you were talking, um, and maybe we can do this before closing with talking about books. Um, so there, there's some teachers that get into education uh, to coach. Uh, we know this is true, you know, football coaches or whatever. Um, how do you how do you view your the uh, relationship between coaching and teaching? Uh, obviously, coaching is a form of teaching, um, and a lot of the same skills transfer over. Uh, but how do you view those kind of uh, different parts of your education life? It's a great question. If I run into people who are about themselves, whether it's on the field, pool deck, tennis court, or classroom, they have the same problem. They're in it for the record. They're in it for the banner in the gym. They're in it for whatever accolades it brings them. Um, on the other hand, if you're a coach, an advisor, a teacher who is there to use that topic to advance kids and you do it with love that pom-pom and bullwhip we're all in the same business so i'll give you an example for many years i taught journalism and i would say to the kids we're not in the journalism business we're in the people business and i tell my swimmers we're not in the swim business we're in the people business and you know to an ap class of my u.s history kids we're not in the ap business we're in the people business and when you foster love of learning, mental health, time management, uh, the value of literacy, the skill of, of, of accepting people into a broader tribe of our team, our school, our community, our nation. When you teach values such as those, you're going to get better AP scores. You're going to win more points on the field. You're going to produce better newspapers. So, I'm uncomfortable with the concept that, hey, I'm a coach who also teaches. Well, what kind of coach are you? What are you doing here? Uh, and now on the, the flip side, I've met plenty of teachers that don't coach, and I wish they did because, for example, a track coach that wants to teach a kid to get over the high jump bar, a good track coach will beg, borrow, and steal, do anything possible to help every kid advance now imagine if you taught that way and to me there's a lesson there so a great coach who has the humility of i'll borrow from that coach i'll look up the latest research i don't care if you're the shortest or slowest we're going to get the best out of you imagine if we taught that way and, and i like to think that's how i teach uh, how many times do we have to change this assessment to get you to master this what do we have to do so that you enjoy being here and light a fire and find that dream for you? So I, I think your question, maybe you found this in many of my responses. I, 
I, I think most of the topics have been oversimplified, not by you, but by society. And uh, I'm, I'm suspicious of any coach or advisor that's in the wrong place for the wrong reason. And I'll add one more thing to my verbose response here. If you go into any high school gymnasium, you're going to see banners and you're going to see league titles and state championships. And those are a natural part of the system and they give pride and they have purpose. But I also think it's important to remember that those banners, sometimes they don't say the whole story. They don't tell us how many kids dropped out because they were cut, how many kids were broken by a coach who pushed them too far, how many kids ended up with eating disorders because of the way they were coached. On the other hand, the absence of those banners, they, that doesn't tell the story of how many kids found a family, how many kids got good values, how many kids learned that, that uh, hey, I need to do academically well and athletically well. Hey, the physical body matters like the mind. So there's a lot to be gained from coaching in, in the, the school systems. And I just hope that it's part of that intimate relationship of the full package. And I think good coaches and good teachers um, are often one and the same. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's so much media, whether it's Last Chance You, you know, some of these Netflix documentaries or, you know, books written by coaches, you know, like Pete Carroll or Bill Belichick or whatever. But honestly, my favorite coach thing that I've watched recently is uh, this uh, kind of comedic TV show called Ted Lasso. And it's uh, about a coach that uh, coaches American football and goes to England uh, to coach soccer, never having played the sport. And the show is really about uh, how the coaching is really him getting to know the players as human beings and helping them to be better human beings. Um, and it's, it's, it's a, it's the a best great... uh, coaching book I've ever read. What's that? I'm sorry. sorry I, I was going to say the best coaching book I've ever read uh, was by Jeffrey Marks called season of life. It's short. I'd highly recommend it to anyone out there who's interested. Uh, he won the Pulitzer for it, I believe. Uh, basically, it's a journalist that, that goes back to kind of his roots as he's exploring his own relationship with his father, and he follows a high school football team and their incredible group of coaches that he had known from his youth, and it really talks about the importance of giving young people role models, values, high expectations, and love which any good teacher, any good advisor, any good coach would do. And it just goes back to the point that kids need us. This is not an easy time to grow up. And if you're someone who doesn't have that inherently built into you, reading like crazy, reading books like Jeffrey Marks' Season of Life, it's, it's really an inspiring way to build your own toolbox. Absolutely. And let's, let's close with books. Um, what, are, what are a few education-related books you'd recommend uh, for a teacher in any season, it can't. Be, it doesn't have to be a new teacher. Uh, sure. I find that books, you know, can can reinvigorate, you know, after after years of being in the profession. So, what are some recommendations you have? Well, some of them uh, I've already mentioned. Things like Irresistible. Uh, I, I recently read a book called Why We Sleep. Books that look at the challenges facing both professionals and young people, and those are two: the electronics surrounding us, the need for sleep, or our diet. I'm a big advocate for Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, the idea of you know, chasing a dream, figuring out how to manage your time and things like that. But if you want the traditional sort of, let's look at pedagogy and stuff like that, I would, follow, I would give two suggestions. 
One that's fascinating to me is a book called uh, The Smartest Kids in the World. Uh, the author's name is slipping my mind, but she basically studied um, how is it that uh, schools in Finland, Poland, and South Korea went from the bottom of the international testing line back in uh, the early 70s to now they're at the top. And it's a really fascinating look at the United States versus these other institutions and in, in these other nations. And it's not just, you know, 50 lashings with a wet noodle, bad system here. It was a real comprehensive examination of our strengths and weaknesses. And it's an eye-opener. And so I would say both a layperson and an educator might check that out. I'm also a big fan of Marzano. Uh, his books like uh, What Works in Schools, What Works in the Classroom. I mean, it's a lot of science-backed research for, you know, the nine basic uh, teaching methods and, and things like that. One, one of my favorite is... Uh, analogies and metaphors. If you can do that, you're never going to forget that information. So there's a lot of hardcore research out there that teachers need to be familiar with and integrate those into their, their teaching. And maybe one more author, I was able to meet the DeFores. Uh, they worked out of, uh, I think it was Chicago, somewhere in Illinois. And uh, they really overhauled Adlai Stevenson High School and, and that district and really had some revolutionary ideas about how to help students at all levels and lift them up and, and not just make them the teacher's responsibility, but a collective responsibility. Which by the way, if you, going back to that other book, if you study the, the schools in Finland, I think something like 90% of students in Finland go into special ed. Because special ed there is designed to come in and support temporarily with experts, get you to a satisfactory position, and then slowly withdraw support. And that might be a lesson that, uh, you know, we could take and modify some of our programs here. Anyway, I'm a big advocate for reading. There's so many great cutting edge research studies going on out there at the universities. And by the way, a shout out to NPR. Anyone who listens to National Public Radio will get exposed to a lot of those great authors and researchers. And there's always great book ideas from there. Absolutely. Well, you know, I, I, I think uh, being a, what you're talking about is being a lifelong learner. And if we want to inspire our kids to be learners, we have to be learners too. Um, the reading doesn't stop with your credentialing program. The reading just begins with it. It's meant to inspire you to a life of learning, not to be the complete education that you have carrying you through your career. And, uh, you know, I encourage people swipe a little bit less, read a little bit more. Um, Good advice. Know, I think it, uh, I, you know, finishing a great book um, is always better than watching a, there are great YouTube videos. I don't want to underrate that though. There's, there's some great stuff out there and I fall that fall victim to that just like everybody else, but uh, books are important. So anyway, thank you, Jim, for talking with me. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure, Jordan. Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jim. Stay tuned for our next episode where we'll interview another great teacher. Have a great week.